Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's Word together. We are going to wrap up chapter 15 of Romans today, headed toward 16, and we're getting close to the end here. Hey, good afternoon, Rob. Good morning, Megan, child of Elohim. We got uh, Curtis and uh, Amy on Facebook. Andy, good morning. Hey, Dale. So, uh, yeah, we're getting close here to the end of Romans, and some of you may be wondering what we're going to do next. I know what we're going to do next, but you're going to have to wait and see what we're going to do next. So Romans four, uh, 15, verse 14, uh, we looked at this yesterday where Paul says, I am persuaded, my brothers, I myself also, concerning you, that you yourselves are full of goodness, having been filled with all knowledge, also able to admonish one another. And we discussed there how Paul is saying, look, you, you have the Spirit of God. and You are able to encourage one another, to teach one another, to push one another forward. Uh, and and you're, you're good people. You're full of goodness. It says, and the more boldly I wrote to you. Here, this is not a great translation. Uh, these conjunctions, you know, I, I've been using the literal standard version for uh, these live streams just to kind of keep us away from what we're familiar with. Sometimes a new translation can jar us from our, our, what we think we know. And also because in some places, the literal is really good. Here, it's not so great in my opinion. Uh, it always wants to translate, or at least frequently, wants to translate this uh, adversative day, which usually I think is best as but. Uh, they like to treat it as a, a positive conjunction and. And uh, so anyway, I prefer but. I think what he's saying is, uh, you are able to admonish one another, but I wrote to you, brothers, in part, boldly. I wrote to you boldly, so you're able to do this. You have knowledge, you have goodness, but I wrote to you boldly. And he has, hasn't he? Think back through this letter to the Romans. There are some strong words for those with a Jewish background those from a Gentile background, those who maybe are from a Gentile uh, background but have been influenced by Jewish theology. So he's written very strongly, very boldly on the role of the Old Covenant and it's being over and so on. He's also written boldly in the sense that he has called them to press on, to persevere. That old man is dead and they are the new man, they, they're not slaves to sin and so on. He's, so he's written, as he says, very boldly here. Why? Because of the grace that is given to me by God. And this grace that he's talking about is not you know, gospel grace in the sense of forgiveness, but this gift given to him, this mission given by God's grace to him. For what? Verse 16. For my being a servant of Jesus, Messiah, to the nations, right? That's his gift. That's what he's been given to do is to serve Jesus to the nations, acting as a priest in the good news of God, that the offering up of the nations may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, there is something interesting here uh, verbally that you may not notice here in English, but this word servant, this is the word 
a form of the word from which we get our word liturgy. Liturgy. You may think about a church liturgy. Well, in the, uh, in the ancient Greek culture, such as the first century here and before that, this word uh, liturgy and the family of words were used to describe a servant, a public servant, not a, not a servant like a slave you'd have in your household, but someone who served the populace. Today, we might think of politicians. Now, don't, <laughs> don't, don't think about individual politicians. <laughs> don't think about, um, uh, you know, the, the mostly negative views we have of politicians, but the idea of someone as a public servant, that's what we used to call politicians and sometimes still do. Uh, these days, they get paid a handsome sum, but there was a time when they were not paid so well and there was this public service idea. We still maybe talk about police and firefighters and, and some of those folks as, as public servants. Well, that, that's kind of where this family of words uh, liturgy, uh, what, it, what it described. Mostly in the Old Testament scriptures, it was describing those who served as priests. And think about that. The priests were serving the populace, the public of Israel, by bringing their sacrifices to God and their prayers to God. Remember, they ministered, they served in the presence of God on behalf of the populace, on behalf of the people. And you see the verbal linkage here. My being a servant of Jesus Christ, acting as a priest in the good news of God. Now, how many of your churches have a service, say on Sunday morning, and the service has what they refer to as a liturgy? Certainly, if you have been to some of the traditional churches, traditional mainline churches like a Presbyterian, Lutheran, uh, Anglican, Methodist, some of those kind of groups, you're familiar with this idea of liturgy as the quote-unquote worship service. Why do you think they do that? Why do they call those services liturgies? Well, it's because there is a, a, a view, they hold a view that says that the minister is serving a type of priestly function on behalf of the people. And those of you who have been through my church series and you know, you've heard me talk about this, this is one of the holdovers from Roman Catholicism through the Reformation to most of our Protestant churches today. And I think it's counterproductive to what the church is supposed to be. Now, what you'll often hear from the most Protestant of those kind of groups is that we don't really see the service like the temple service. We don't really see the pastor or minister as a liturgist. It's just a term for an order of worship, an order of service. But the very fact that you have a service and an order of service 
and someone leading that order of service in that way, it's in most cases it is a uh, a priestly perspective, and I think we should get rid of all of it. Doesn't mean there's chaos. I'm not saying get rid of any kind of order at all to what you do. I don't know how you have any meeting of any gathering of of any kind without a plan for what you're going to do. And someone typically is the leader, right? Someone kind of walks through it, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying the word liturgy and the idea that there is a, an ordained minister who is different from the other elders, for instance, and usually he has a different title like pastor and that he leads through an official service where there's a call to worship and a benediction at the end. That is a liturgy where that minister is standing before the people in a priestly role. And I believe that there is nothing remotely close to that in the new covenant and there shouldn't be anything close to that in the new testament church notice how paul uses this word liturgy and priesthood Uh, dale says that is their understanding of what worship is yes correct mike says liturgy it is so hard to endure Uh, yeah if I'm understanding you correctly, I would, I would agree. Here's how Paul uses this word. He says, look, I have written to you boldly because I've been called as a liturgist, a servant of Jesus, the Messiah, to the nations, acting as a priest in the good news of God that the offering up of the nations may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You see what he's doing here? He's saying, it's not my job to be a priest over a particular group of Christians. I don't serve as a minister. We shouldn't call them ministers. He says, no, the whole world is my ministry. And I'm called as a priest, a liturgist, to bring the whole world to God. And hopefully it'll be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So he's using liturgy and ministry here and priestly service as bringing the nations to God, not a local congregation. Do you see the difference? His gospel ministry, his his calling people to understand the truth of the gospel That's what he's calling priestly service. So missionaries and evangelists are much more like priests than pastors should be. Isn't that interesting? Prep for Eternity says, Doug, could you explain at some point this thought process of first among equals when it comes to eldership? Is that a biblical thinking? Um... Yeah, it's probably more than what I want to get into here since we're not really talking about eldership. It's a good question. Um, at some point, if I don't get to it, feel free to remind me again. Yeah, there's a, there's a place to have that discussion. I, don't, I just don't want to leave the uh, con- conversation here. 
So y'all tracking with me? The, the, the liturgy priestly ideas is him bringing the nations before the Lord, not, not a church. You don't need a mediator. If you are in Christ, you do not need a mediator. Your pastor is not your mediator. No elder is your mediator. You don't need, we're not, the, the gathering on Sunday morning is not a special sacred service. The room you meet in is not a sanctuary. God is no more present there than he is anywhere else. And in the new covenant, we do not have men or a man whose job it is to bring our prayers and requests to God on our behalf. Jesus is the mediator. We each have direct access to God. And what we've done with our modern post, uh, post-Reformation uh, church services is we have created this old covenant style priesthood, even if people don't use that name. And it's, it, it again, goes against what the church is supposed to be. So it goes on. I have then a boasting in Christ Jesus in the things pertaining to God, for I will not dare to speak anything of the things that Christ did not work through me to obedience of nations by word and deed. Now that's a hard sentence in English, too many negatives, but he's basically saying, I will boast in what Christ has done. He's brought about the obedience of nations. My priestly work is to bring nations to obey Jesus. That's his ministry. That's his liturgy. In the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit of God, so that I, from Jerusalem and in a circle as far as Illyricum, have fully preached the good news of the Christ And so counting it honor to proclaim good news, not where Christ was named already, in other words, not where someone else had already preached the gospel, that on another's foundation I might build. Paul had no desire to preach where someone else had already done the work. But according as it has been written, quote, to whom it was not told concerning him, they will see, and they who have not heard will understand. Here he's quoting from Isaiah 52. All right, so put on your thinking caps. What chapter of Isaiah comes after chapter 52? (laughs) Isaiah 53, right? Well, we all know what Isaiah 53 is about. That's the suffering servant. That's the one who's going to come and and take our iniquities and, and take our sins upon himself and take the punishment that we deserve and all that. Well, 52 precedes 53 and we make chapter breaks there, but the context and the, and the, the oracle doesn't change. So we need to always read Isaiah 53 in light of what came before it. And I'm just going to hold a, a focus in on here a few verses of Isaiah 52 to uh, bring us up to speed into why Paul would see himself as a fulfillment of 52. You know this passage. We looked at it in chapter 10. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who announces peace who brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. So the day is coming when the Lord is going to restore the city of God. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. So they're going to be laid waste and then they're going to be restored. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his arm, his holy arm, in the sight of all the nations. 
So he's going out of Jerusalem now in his view to all the peoples, the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. You see this global view and mindset, not just Jerusalem. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch nothing unclean. Go out in the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. So the imagery here is people fleeing from their exile with the, uh, the holy temple vessels and heading back to Jerusalem. But you will not go out in haste, nor will you go out as fugitives. That's in contrast to the way they left Egypt centuries before. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant will prosper. Here's the introduction of this servant that we will see more of in chapter 53. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Now we know who that is, don't we? That's the Messiah. That's Jesus. Just as many were uh, astonished at you, speaking now back to the Israelites, so his appearance, the servants, was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So you have this prediction of this servant who's coming. He's going to be uh, deformed. Thus, in this way, through the deformity, through the marred appearance, he will sprinkle many nations. 